so as you just said, I'm Daniel, uh, or Dan, <clears throat> and um, it's been a while, actually, since I preached. Last time I preached was before COVID, so it feels like eons ago, but um, just a quick introduction. I and my wife, Erin, are the youth directors at Aletheia Church. Believe it or not, if you did not know we have youth, we do, um, and we lead it. So if you know any youth, feel free to send them our way. So um, I am not the youth leader, or the, uh, sorry, I'm, I am the youth leader. I'm not the worship leader. I do not have a baby boy. And again, my wife's name is Erin, just so that we're on the same page. That is my twin for those of you who are confused. Um, first order of operations, we do have scripture reading journals for those of you who would like one. Um, they're in the back, or you can raise your hand, and we will give them to you. This is the last uh, sermon on Joshua 24. So it will probably just be this one, and then you can use it for whatever personal use after that. But I'm going to go ahead and pray before I actually jump into the message. Okay. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to, to gather together, to, to sing songs together, to listen to your word together, to, to to hear from you. I pray that you would just bless this time. May your spirit work through each and every one of us and convict us and guide us. This is all about you. It's all about what you've done. May you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you have already heard read, we are looking at Joshua 24, 1 to 15. And... Uh, just to kind of give a, a brief recap, Joshua is gathering the entire uh, Israelite nation, and he's giving them a, a summary. He's actually prophesying, and so God is declaring to the Israelite nation basically a historical narrative from the time of Abraham all the way to, to present day. And then after that, Joshua kind of steps back in and provides a word. He, he calls the Israelites to fear and serve the Lord. And what's cool about this text is, is this historical narrative that we see here is, is not unique to this passage. It's actually all throughout Scripture where someone literally goes and gives the history of the nation of Israel. We see it in uh, Psalm 78 with Asaph. We see it in Psalm 106 with David, uh, Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9, and Stephen before the Sanhedrin in Acts 7. But really, it's everywhere. I mean, if you read Scripture, keeping in mind this, this motif of a historical narrative in scripture, uh, it is everywhere. And what's cool about this motif is it points to a bigger theme in scripture, which is remembrance. God really wants his people to remember. We see it with the stone tablets. We see it with the ark. We see it with the tabernacle. We see it with so many things throughout scripture where God is establishing things so that we can remember because we are a forgetful people. I don't know how many times uh, you've run into this, but a, a number of times where I'm reading scripture, and I've been reading scripture for, I think, since I was like 18. Um, and so it is shocking how many times I will read a scripture and be like, when did that get in the Bible? I'm hearing some yeses. Like, this happens all the time to me, which is kind of sad. I don't really know. Uh, I guess that's just my human condition. But it is the nature of it. We are very forgetful people. And so we are in desperate need of remembrance or reminding. And this is what we see in, in the text today. Um, we're going to look through this idea, this theme of remembrance, through the lens of Joshua 24. 
And so uh, I'm just, I got a quick outline for you guys just to kind of solidify it in your head. And it's going to take us chronologically through the text, which is, I thought was kind of cool. Um, how we can remember, and then obviously why we fail to remember from that, what we must remember, and then what happens when we remember. Um, so let's go ahead and just jump into verse 1, because it's going to give us a little bit of an indicator of uh, what, uh, how we can remember. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So what do you notice about this? It might not have been super obvious right off the bat, but the very first two words actually give us an indicator of how we can remember. It says, Joshua gathered. And this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. God establishes primary leaders as people that can help us remember his truth. What do we know about Joshua? Joshua was appointed by God to take over Moses. Moses sinned, and he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so Joshua stepped in his place, and he led the Israelites up to this point, up to this day. And now he's gathering them, and he's providing a prophecy through God as a vessel to remind his people, God's people, of his own truth. And so God establishes, this is, this is not new to this, this section, it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it could be David or the apostles. God is always establishing primary leaders within his church to help his people remember. And we must be willing to, to listen to that. Today, as, as a modern church, this is more manifested in elders. So, you know, Kevin, Stephen, Theo, Daniel, they're all primary leaders within the church. And they have been given the function, one of the functions that they serve is to help us remember. Remember God's truth. And so we must be willing to submit to that. This is what First um, Peter 5, 1 through 2 says about elders. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as you would have, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You can kind of see the, 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 the uh, important role for elders is, is shepherding and guiding and I'm sure you've heard this before, but obviously if, if they're shepherds, that makes us sheep, which is not a, a flattering term, unfortunately. Um, sheep are very vulnerable and they're pretty dumb and they need to be guided. And so the function of an, of an elder ultimately is to, it's just to guide the flock and to protect them and to remind them. This happened just this past, leak, past week with Kevin. Um, he reminded me through the message of um, how I should not be mocking other people. He talked about unity and the importance of that, and it reminded me, like, I, I have fallen trap to mocking people of how they approach COVID. You know, one way or the other, I fall into that. And so he was fulfilling his function as an elder for us, and it was very helpful for me. But I also want to point out the, the nature of a shepherd is if there are sheep, there are wolves, and there are a lot of wolves. Guys, um, I would encourage you not to get your main theology from Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or YouTube. There's, there is a lot of good content out there, but 
There's also so many wolves, so many false teachers, so many self-help gospels, so many find-your-own-truth gospels out there, so many wolves, so many false teachers. And so the, the importance of elders, assuming that they are preaching from the Word of God and devoted to learning the Word of God, is that they can help us stay on track and guide us. And we must be keen to listen to that and to submit to that. But, thankfully, uh, God has not just left us um, just the elders. It would be difficult for just a couple people to lead a, a significant amount of people, right? And so God is very intentional to establish secondary leaders within the church to help this as well. This is what we see at the end of uh, verse 1. It says, He summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. He's summoning all these other people that God has established within the nation of Israel to help, right? We see this with uh, Jethro in, wherever it is, Exodus 18, right? Jethro comes up to the nation of Israel. He sees Moses is trying to lead the entire nation by himself. He's just sitting there, and everyone's coming to him with all their problems and everything that they need, and he's like, bro, this is not good for you or for them. This will not work out. And so he says, you need to set up other leaders to help in this process. And this is what they do. They set up heads. They set up elders. They set up other people to lead the tribes. And the same is true for our church, whether it's GC leaders um, or youth directors or women's ministry leaders or whoever it is, deacons. We have deacons at this church. Um, These all help to serve and to remind us of God's truth. What's beautiful, though, um, is it's not just the leaders of the church, right? Who all is coming before God in this text? Who all is being reminded? Everyone. All the tribes. That's what it says in verse 1. Gathered everyone. This is, this is an important thing because I, I don't want people to think that like, oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a, just a dumb sheep. I mean, we are all just dumb sheep, but we all have to including the elders uh, and including the youth director. You know, everyone is, is uh, ultimately in need of uh, God's help. But I just want to say that also everyone is ultimately uh, responsible for reminding one another of God's truth. It's not just up to the elders. Everyone is here gathered together before, um, before God and before Joshua. And we see this also in, in Deuteronomy uh, 6 four through nine, that it's not just leaders, right? It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Everybody is responsible for remembering. Everybody's responsible for helping one another to remember, whether it's your father or your mother or your brother or your sister or your friend or your coworker or your fellow uh, church member. Whoever it may be, we are all responsible for reminding one another. And what I love about that text as well is it just says everywhere and anywhere 
Don't matter where you are, what you're doing, where you're going, partake in remembering what God has said. It's important that we're all partaking in this. Thankfully, though, God has not just left, left it to, to just mankind because we are all dumb sheep, right? And so we all ultimately need the good shepherd, and that is who he is. This is what we see in verse 2. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, God himself is speaking to the Israelites. Yes, Joshua is a vessel, but God is ultimately speaking directly through the prophetic word to his people because he wants his people to remember. He wants us to know his truth and to not forget. And so God establishes this. Um, Sometimes it's in a direct audible voice like we see on Mount Sinai, but it's uncommon Right? I mean, we saw how the Israelites reacted to that not super well. They were trembling in fear. So it's pretty uncommon for God to do that. But typically, we also see God, uh, especially in the Old Testament, speaking through his prophets. And he would do this through both Joshua in this text, but Moses and David and all the major and minor prophets, all of them functioning as vessels because God wants to communicate to his truth, communicate his truth to us. And what's beautiful is all these, all these messages from God, all of this information is ultimately compiled into the word that we have now today. We call it God's word because that is exactly what it is. It is God's word for us. And so we must be diligent. If God said, hey, I'm going to give you this word as a reminder, well, it would be wise of us to read that word to read the word of God, because it's a main way in which we can remember his truth. The other way in which we can uh, remember his truth is actually something that um, is new in in the new covenant, which is very special. Um, In the old covenant, you might have had a couple people who were, you know, prophets and who had the spirit working within them in a particular way. But nowadays, actually, the spirit of God dwells within each and every one of us as a reminder which is awesome. (laughs) It makes it so much easier when he is writing the law on our hearts. This is what it says in Ezekiel 36, 27, a prophecy. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God has given us his spirit as a reminder so that we do not forget Jesus affirms this in John 14, 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So God has established all these ways in which he is wanting to communicate to us. So we must be diligent to actually allow that. Do not, ex- do not ignore the, the conviction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Do not neglect to read his word and try to hear from him. God wants us to remember. There's a couple other ways I'm going to address that aren't specifically in this text, but I think will be helpful um, for us to remember, because God also established these, particularly in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we saw monuments and memorials. This was a regular thing. Uh, We saw it with 
Jacob, who wanted to set up a, a stone memorial after God had promised him that he would provide him an abundance of offspring. And so Jacob set up a stone and a marker as, you know, as he travels through that land, he would remember that God has been faithful and that God has given him that promise. What's cool is he comes back 20 years later, he's like, aha, <laughs> with, all of his, with all of his offspring, with everything that God has promised, and he sees the stone, and he's like, I'm going to set up another one. One is a reminder again of God's promises, of God's faithfulness. And we see this with Joshua. After they get through the, the Jordan, they set up 12 stones as a reminder of, of God's law, and again, how God delivered them. And we see this with Ebenezer. He set up a memorial. He set up the Ebenezer. The, it's Samuel. Samuel set up an Ebenezer stone. Um, he, <laughs> Scrooge. Um, he set up an Ebenezer stone, which is a stone of help. And this stone was, uh, was a reminder to them of how God delivered them from the Philistines. And so we see this. We see this also with Don, uh, David in Psalm 34. It was basically a monument established by David as a reminder, like a written monument, as a reminder of how God delivered him from the hand of Abimelech. And so what's important is that we too could do this, right? We could establish monuments in our own lives, whether it is like writing something on your doorpost, or it could be whatever you want. If you're into the whole rock thing, you know, pet rocks used to be a thing or whatever, you know, you could do something like that, but you could also do um, like a certain paraphernalia, or again, like a sign or a jar of memories, a picture collage. It can be whatever you want. The important thing is that we remember, just like the Israelites strive to do, and God is striving to help us to do. We also see it in feasts, and um, I guess the parallel would be sacraments. Feasts were established by God for the Israelite nation. We had uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a reminder of how God delivered them from Egypt. And um, the idea of leaven is basically sin. And so unleaven represents purity. And so they wanted to remember the nature of, of sin in their own lives, as well as God's own holiness. We also see with Passover, the sacrifice of the lamb, atoning for them and protecting them from the, from the wrath of God that was about to be poured out against the Egyptians. We see it with the Feast of First Fruits, a reminder of God's provision, the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. All of these God established, particularly in the Old Testament, as reminders for the Israelite nation. He really wanted them to remember. Today, we don't really celebrate those feasts, but we do have a parallel with that. Because ultimately, all these feasts, what are they doing? They're reminding them of God, but even more so, these feasts actually are pointing to Christ. You think about the Lamb of God, the redemption that comes from that, the nature of sin and decay, and the nature of purity and holiness and sinlessness that is Christ. All of these things point to the Messiah to come for them that has already come. And we know of him. And so sacraments represent uh, and act as a parallel for that for us today. We have um, baptism, which represents Christ's death and resurrection, and how we too are now dead to sin and resurrected to new life as a new creation. A reminder. 
We also have communion, and I'll get into this more later, but communion is a reminder of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and so we remember him by his body and his blood. And so we have feasts and uh, sacraments. But we also have spiritual disciplines. It's really important that we um, actually partake in these spiritual disciplines established by God, whether it's um, praying, singing songs, or reading God's word, memorizing scripture, both, both as a community, as you're doing right now, good job, or privately, independently. We see this in um, Exodus 15, Moses and Miriam um, and the Israelites are singing a song as a reminder and as a thankfulness to what God has done for them by delivering them out of the land of Egypt. And we do the same thing, right? We're not just singing these songs and having lofty lyrics that mean absolutely nothing like some songs may do. We want to actually remember something. We actually want to remember God's truth. And this is why, again, we are devoted to spiritual disciplines, or at least we should be if we want to remember. What's interesting about this text, though, is God is reminding the Israelites of something they already know, right? Of course, that's the nature of reminding. But what does that mean? It's obviously indicative that the Israelites are quick to forget, and God knows this. He knows his sheep. So the question is, why do we fail to remember, right? It's something that we have to be on guard against. Obviously, the most clear answer to that is just we're not partaking in any of the things that God has established for us to remember, right? So we're not partaking in the spiritual disciplines. We're not partaking in the sacraments. We're not partaking in uh, the community of God and letting them function as a reminder. We're not submitting to authority and recognizing it as it is. We're not doing any of these things. We're not listening to God's voice by reading his word and listening to his spirit. And so we have to be on guard against that. But I'll also say, um, this is a very big issue in the church today, and it is complete immersion into the world and into the ways and the people of this world. This is a very easy thing to fall trapped to. You have to consider your own life. What are you spending all of your time doing? Because that will be what you remember. That will become your truth. If all of your time is spent on social media, on the news, on Netflix, or whatever else, that will become your truth. It will be. If you're not devoted to the things that God has called you to be devoted to, instead you're spending time doing all these other things, then guess what? That will become what you remember. It's the same way with the people of this world. God is very intentional about making sure that his community is together and helping one another. He establishes a church for a reason, because he knows our nature. If we go out and spend all of our time with unbelievers, then guys, guess what? We are the sheep. We are the ones who are easily led astray. We are the ones who are easily going to go the opposite direction. If you think that you can spend all of your time with unbelievers and in the ways of this world, then you, then you won't. You will not remember this truth. And I'm not saying you can't spend time with unbelievers. We must. There's no way we can preach the gospel if we do not. And one of the best ways that we preach the gospel is by actually loving these people and befriending these people and spending time with these people. So we do need to be spending time with them 
And it is okay to, to be on social media and Netflix and whatever else that you're on. Um, not whatever else, but <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, but if it is out of balance, if you are more emphasizing the ways and the things of this world in your own life, then do not be surprised, right? This is a problem in the church today. The church is allowing the world and the culture to influence how we understand truth and how we understand God's word. Things like human sexuality and gender roles in the way that church has historically really never, as far as I'm aware, interpreted the Bible, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the churches are all interpreting things in this way. It should be a red flag that we are allowing what is the ideology and the promoted ideas of our culture to influence what we remember and what we view as truth. We have to be on guard. We have to read God's word. We have to know what is actually truth. We have to remember what is actually truth, lest we stray. It's a warning for all of us. We see this with uh, the Israelites in Numbers 15. Actually, I want to give a quick uh, other text, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. This is just kind of proving what I was saying. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Paul's clear about it. We have to be careful what company we are in and how much time we are in that company, right? This is what it says in Numbers 25. Again, this alludes to this idea of bad company. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of those you kill, each of you kill those of his men whom have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the Israelites came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Kevin shared this last week. This is a warning to each and every one of us. Do you notice what is the first thing to be corrupted in the Israelite nation? Their idea on sexual morals. They quickly adopt the gods of the, of the surrounding nation. They quickly fall into their sinful practices. They quickly are led astray. And God was displeased. The same is true for us, right? <laughs> sexual morals are pretty quick to go, and we know how society understands those things. They have none, right? So if we want to remember what God wants us to remember, then we must find our truth in God's word. Again, this is also why we do not yoke with unbelievers. We do not marry unbelievers. 
Scripture is clear about that, and it's obvious in this text why. As well as, you know, I, I, I strongly suggest you do not date unbelievers. That is unwise as well, because you're spending an awful lot of time with an individual who does not believe in the same truth you believe. And trust me, you are going to be more led astray by them than they will be led to the gospel by you. If you are dating an unbeliever, this is the case most of the time, right? It's something to be on guard about. So we talked a lot, a, a lot of ways in which um, we can remember and ways in which we can forget, but there's also perhaps the most uh, important thing is what we actually must remember. There's a lot of things you could remember, but we need to know, according to God's word, what we must remember. So we see this in these uh, verses 2 through 13. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the, land, the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come up, come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I set the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow, I gave you a land in which you had not labored and cities in which you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Very interesting, right? What is God emphasizing in this text? I kind of emphasize it as well. It is God who accomplishes these things. It is God who is sovereign. And so one of the points that we must remember is what he has done. What he has done. This text is all about God and what he has done for the Israelite nation. What's amazing is uh, uh, God says, I, 18 times to the Israelite nation in this text. I was like, wow, he is serious about it is him who accomplished these things. And you may be like, well, wait a minute, wasn't it, uh, wasn't it Abraham who walked to the land of Canaan? Wasn't it him who produced his own offspring through Sarai? Wasn't it uh, Moses who delivered them from the Egyptians and, and brought them up to the promised land, and Joshua who brought them up to this point this very day? 
Not what God says. God says, I am the one who did all these things. Not you. We cannot breathe without God. We cannot think without God. We cannot accomplish anything. We cannot work. We cannot study. We cannot do anything without God's sovereign hand allowing it. And so ultimately, he is the one who is responsible for these great things. They were merely vessels in his plan to provide for his nation. Uh, This reminds me of a message provided by by Matt Chandler. It's a fairly well-known message. Um, I love this message because Matt Chandler is going to a, a, a conference. They invited him this church, which I will not name, but you can ask me after when I will tell you about it. Um, this church is hosting a conference that's supposedly about God's, um, what God is doing in their church, but it quickly turns into how great this church is and all the numbers that they've got and all the great things that they have done. And all the speakers that are coming to this church are all like, yes, you, this church, you're awesome. You're doing great. Look at you, saving lives, whatever, you know, all that garbage. Um, and, and Matt Chandler comes in and he just kind of bursts that bubble. And he, and he has a famous line, which some of you may have heard of, you are not David. And this is the common trap for us and for churches in general, is we like to look at scripture and we like to think that we're the heroes of the story, right? We're David. We're the ones, we got to conquer Goliath. We got to take down that football team or we got to whatever it is. But scripture is clear. We're not the heroes of the story. We're not the David. If really we're going to, to dig deeper into this idea David functions as a foreshadowing of Christ, right? Christ is the better David. Christ is the better Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. He's the better of all these things. While they sinned, he did not. So it's about God, if we're anyone in this story, as Matt Chandler says, we're the Israelites shivering in the corner of, like, into David and Goliath dynamic. That is who we are. And so we have to be careful not to make ourselves the hero of the Bible, nor the hero of our own lives. Because we will be absolutely crushed by the pressure of it. And I can say this from personal example. This past week, I was crushed by anxiety and fear and stress over this message. Believe it or not, preaching is not as easy as Kevin and the other elders like to make you think, right? Um, They don't try to make you think that. It just looks like that. Um, But you will be crushed as I was crushed by the weight of thinking that this was about my message or my story or whatever I had to communicate to you guys. But it's not about me. Again, I could not even stand here if it were not for God allowing me. If it were not for the Spirit working within me, I could not communicate God's truth because he is the one who provides it for me as well as his word. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, this This is a concern for all of us. This is what we see in uh, Numbers 14, the Israelite nation, right? They, 
they are crushed by the pressure because this is what happens. The Israelites, they get to the promised land. They send out a couple spies. Ten of them come back out of the 12 and say, oh, no, we cannot. There is no chance we're going to take this land. These people are absolutely huge. Land, great. People, not. You know, this land is intimidating. And so God is upset. Of course he is. Because all of a sudden the Israelites thought that they were the heroes of the story. They thought that they were the ones who in their own strength had somehow gotten to this point in the first place. But had they? No. And so they tried to make themselves the hero of the story. They live in fear. God sends out his wrath and says to the Israelite nation, you will wander through the wilderness. You will wander through the desert. None of you will see this land except for Joshua and Caleb. (laughs) And of course, the Israelites are still trying to make themselves the hero of the story. And they're like, snap, now we should try to get into the land of of the promised land. (laughs) And so they gather themselves and they try to conquer the people in the promised land and they are absolutely defeated by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. They are crushed because they tried to make themselves the hero of the story and they lost and they were defeated. The same is true for you and for me. If we try to make ourselves the hero of our own lives, of our own story, of our jobs, of our relationships, of anything else, and not try to do it within the strength and the power of God, then we will be crushed. I don't want to be crushed. (laughs) And so we must remember that it is God who is the hero. It is all about God, and God is clear about that in this text. It is all about what he has done. Ultimately, the, the most important thing that we can remember that, that God has done is the work of Christ, right? And I'm going to get into this more and more later. But there's a lot of things that we could remember about what God has done in the Scripture. This is, this is one part. The historical narrative of Israel is something to remember. That's why God put it in his word. There is an abundance of things that God has done. So I'm going to let you read the word, all of it, for yourself, and you can see more about what God has done. But I'm just emphasizing that it is he who accomplishes great things, right? Um, the other component that we see in this text is not just what he has done, but who he is. This is also something very important to remember in this text that we have today is very helpful in uh, reminding us of this. Verses three to four show that God is a guide and a provider in the way that he brought and he guided Abraham to the land of Canaan. He is also a provider in the way that he provided an abundance of offspring for him and Jacob and Esau. Verses five through seven show that God is a deliverer and a protector in the way that in which he delivered the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians. He brought them to the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. He drowned the Egyptians within that Red Sea, and then he protected them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's a deliverer and a protector. Verses 8 through 13 show that God is omnipotent and powerful. He defeated the Amorites, Jericho, the Parasites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. We see all this in this text today about who God is, and I encourage you as you read Scripture to understand who God is as you read it. I'm just pulling out a couple of them just from this text, but I'm going to give you a couple more 
just so that you know. God is righteous. God is just. God is gracious. God is patient. He is faithful. Love. He's three in one. Infinite. He's incomprehensible. He's immutable or unchanging. He's holy, good, eternal. There's really not enough words in any language to describe who God is, but we should still strive to know it, right? We should still try to to read God's word and, and gather from it who God is and what his nature is. Again, the world is not going to tell you his true nature. They'll tell you a lot of false stuff about his nature, but they will not genuinely tell you his nature. So we remember what God has done, who he is, as well as what he said. I'm not going to dwell on this a ton, but it is important that we do uh, remember all the, the commands and the promises that God has given us. And he has given us a lot uh, of both, which is great. If you want to listen to Daniel Espy's message, he talks about promises. You can hear a lot more promises in that one than I'm going to give you. Um, and the same thing with, with commands. I'm not going to give you a ton of commands, but I'm going to give you this text in John 15, or John 14, 15 through 24, because it talks about promises and commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, that's promise. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home through the Spirit in him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. We will not be left as orphans because of Christ. Because of his work, and the fact that he has revealed his truth to us. And now out of that, we love him. And that is the ultimate indicator that we are living by faith, is that we love God. What is the first commandment? Love the Lord your God. What is the second? The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the, the, the main indicator, right? There's a lot of ways that people will say like, oh, your spiritual... Uh, gifts or whatever and all that stuff is the main way that you can tell if you're a Christian. Nope. Bible says it's about, it's about love. It's about the way you love God and the way you love people. So we must remember what he said. We also remember, must remember who we are. Scripture talks a lot about God, but it also talks a lot about us. Um, God is faithful uh, and we, we're not typically. Um, we see this a lot in Scripture. But uh, I'm just going to give you a couple texts that talk about what the Bible says about us, because a lot of people nowadays get pretty skewed on um, where our value comes from and how great we are as people and blah, blah, blah. The um, Bible says something a little different. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
That's not good. Um, Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Right? That's not the kind of preaching that sometimes we hear nowadays where everyone likes to make you feel really good about yourself because you're such an awesome human being. Um, not, not really, uh, according to Scripture, unfortunately. Um, just a cool thing to point out, this is actually a parallel, parallel verse with Psalm 14, uh, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. I just thought that was neat. Anyway, um, so it's interesting that this, this idea uh, is so prevalent in Scripture that we're not good, and yet uh, we are very quick to rely on ourselves, are we not? We're very quick to boast about ourselves. We're very quick to try to show people how great we are. The Bible's pretty clear. You're not, you're not that great, you know, and neither am I. So it's important that we, um, we kind of let that influence our lives. But I do want to say that you do have value. But the value did not come from anything you have done, Right? Scripture says that we are wonderfully made in the image of God, and we are loved. For those of us who are in Christ, we are temples, children of God, friends of God. We are a new creation, salt of the earth, light of the world, and more. Those sound good, but where did those come from? Those are all gifts. We did not earn being made in the image of God. That was just God saying, I'm going to do this for you. We did not earn salvation. We did not earn becoming a temple. We did not earn becoming a child of God. We were adopted. He made us his own. He gave us the value. It is not in and of ourselves and anything that we have accomplished that gave us the value that we have. So what does this mean? This means that I do not want you to leave this message just hanging your head and living in shame. Because that is not what the gospel is. The fact that you have been given value is a reason to be thankful and to be full of joy and to recognize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it also means that we do not boast in ourselves, right? As I said earlier, we must remember who we are. It's amazing that, um, I'll just quote it right now. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This points to what we have done. It's important to remember now, what we have done is we have sinned. What Christ has done is he has paid the penalty for that sin. So it's important that we remember that we have all fallen short. We see this in uh, this text today. If we're going to go through a little bit of the, the history behind some of this, Abraham fell short in the way in which he did uh, not trust God, right, to bring him as God promised, God promised he'd bring him to the land of Canaan. But Abraham decides, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give up my wife to Pharaoh 
so that, she, so that he does not kill me. So he's like, I'm going to say that's my sister, um, so no reason to kill me and take her from me. He gave up the woman that was supposed to produce the offspring. God was gracious enough to take to send a plague to, to, to Pharaoh and say, all right, nope, that's his, okay? That's his wife. Do not do anything to her. He fell short in that, and he fell short whenever he was uh, supposed to be producing the offspring that God also promised to him, right? He's like, ah, I don't know. You know, I don't know if we're going to have this, this baby that God said, so let's just, and with, with the influence of Sarai, let's just uh, give you Hagar, my mistress, and sleep with her, and we see the problem that came from that with Ishmael and everything else. Moses, same thing. He had fallen short. He did not trust God that he, that he could lead a nation through, through the power of God. As well as whenever they were uh, trying to, when the Israelites were grumbling about water, instead of trusting God and just speaking water out of a rock, he struck it. He was flippant. In a way, he was self-reliant in that moment thinking that it was in his own power. God was gracious, but he did say to, to Moses, you're not entering the promised land because of that. So even all these great people that we read in Scripture, they all fell short as well, right? It's the nature for all of us. We all do these things. So then the question is, what must we do, Right? We know all these things about who we are, who God is, what we've got to remember. We've got to know what we must do. And this is what we see in verses 14 to 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether it is the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What an awesome text. It's clear now that we must, what we must do. We remember what God's truth is. And now we must serve, we must fear and serve the Lord. Like Isaiah before the throne room who is trembling at, the, at God's presence. Fear does involve trembling at times. But it also involves reverence actually recognizing that God is extremely holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He deserves our fear and awe and reverence. And we also know that we must serve in sincerity um, and faithfulness. We should not be like the, uh, the Pharisees who served, but Really, it was not in, in, in a genuine love for God. It was not in it was actual faith in the work of Christ. They served on the outside, but not within their hearts. Jesus helps us to understand what it looks like to, to worship and to serve him. He says this, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink. That is the wrong one. Basically, he talks to this woman. Do I have it? Yes, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit, the nature of the spirit is, is it calls us to repentance. It convicts us. It helps us to resist temptation. And so we worship with the spirit in mind, recognizing that it is working within our lives. And in truth, we also must recognize that uh, there is an actual truth 
and it is in God's word. And so we can't just worship with any truth that we like. There is a specific truth in God's word, and we must worship with that truth. Otherwise, this is also a problem nowadays, we're going to be worshiping some other God. If you decide to pick and choose what you like in Scripture, if you decide that, "Mm, I don't know if I believe that about God, the nature of that is now you're creating just a different God than the one that is in the Bible. We actually have to worship in the truth of God's Word and not in some other lofty idea of what Scripture says. It's important that we worship uh, in sincerity and faithfulness. The other nature of it is, uh, as we, uh, in terms of what we must do, is cast away idols. This text is, is very clear on that. And it's, <laughs> it's very difficult for us to do this. We love our idols, unfortunately. Um, but I want you to consider who, what that might be for your own life. Um, obviously, most of you guys probably don't have like a, a golden calf in your house or, or some other shrine. Um, if you do, get rid of that for sure. But if you, if you have, um, you know, you may have uh, idols or, or gods of approval or security or um, maybe it's a, a, a partner or fame, money, sex, whatever it may be for you. Um, I was pretty clear. You got to cast those away. Fear and serve him and him alone. So then the question is, what's going to happen, right? We, we remember all this stuff. We try to do all these things. What happens when we remember? Just kind of a little bit of what we talked about, what, what we must do. Of course, um, it's going to look like, and this is kind of from Hebrews 11, it will look like Abraham who had faith in God's promises and offered up his only son, like Moses who considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the, and the treasure of Egypt, like Israel and Joshua, whose faith led to the walls of Jericho falling down. It's ultimately going to look like Christ in the example that he set before us. I want to point out that all the people that I talked about, especially in Hebrews 11, what's the emphasis? The faith that they had. It's not that they just like did these great things. It's that they had faith that God would use them to accomplish great things. They had faith in God's word and his truth, and what he told them, and faith in the promise of a coming Messiah to redeem them. And the same is true for us. We must live in faith. And therefore, because of that, we will fear and serve God in sincerity and faithfulness. We will put away idols when we remember what God wants us to remember. If we genuinely have faith, and we genuinely remember God's truth. What about uh, when we fail to remember? This is something that uh, you probably, it will be helpful if you do a little bit of a self-check in your own life. Um, Like the Israelites who grumbled in the desert, we will become untrusting, ungrateful, fearful, self-centered, isolated. We will turn to the idols and gods of this world this is the, the nature of it. All of a sudden, we'll become like the Israelites. We'll whore after other things. We'll whore after other gods. We'll, we'll be immersed in other things. 
Check your own life. What are you spending your time doing? What are you spending your time thinking about? What are you worshiping? If you remember, you're putting yourself in a much better position to actually serve and fear the Lord in the way that you should. If you forget, then you will not cast away the idols that God has called you to cast away. So look at your own life. Maybe you need to remember something better. I would encourage you to, to look at the ways that I talked about and to think about that for yourself. Uh, what, are, what are the things that I'm not doing? Is my life looking more like an Israelite in rebellion? Or is it looking like someone who is a faith, who is trusting God, not fearing the world, not living in anxiety, not living uh, as someone who's stressed? And I'm just saying, guys, I'm all these things, right? I'm not saying I'm not any of these things. I struggle with these too. There's a reason the Bible says, commands us not to be anxious because uh, it knows we are. Um, I'm just saying, when you are partaking in those things, recognize that it's probably because of a lack of remembrance. And so my encouragement to you today is strive to remember. Strive to do these things to remember. Serve and fear the Lord. Uh, in conclusion, uh, we take communion every week, and I'm going to provide a full-on liturgy later. we got a liturgy. Um, I don't know if it's official, but I'm providing it anyway. Um, we take communion every week as a reminder of the work of Christ. And really, this is the most important thing to remember. This is what we must be unified in and by. It is Christ and his work that we must focus on because it will compel us to do so many good things for the gospel. We will learn to become selfless. We will learn to walk in humility. We will learn to be thankful and to be grateful and to be filled with joy if we do all these things. Jesus says this to his disciples. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance. Remembrance. I'm not going to do it again. Of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is new covenant in my blood. We must remember this. And from this comes so much, so many other ideas in Scripture, so many other things. It points to the, to the value of the Old Testament because the Old Testament spoke about this Jesus that would come. As I said, there's so many foreshadowings to him. There's so much beauty in all of Scripture. We must devote ourselves to remembering it as God has called us to do. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go through the liturgy. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember oh, how desperately we need to. You have given us so many things that we can remember, and I pray that we would devote ourselves to, to remembering those things, to, to gathering together, to, to reading your word, also that ultimately at the end of the, end of the day, you would be glorified, we would recognize you are the hero of our lives. You are the hero of the Bible. You are the hero of it all. 
May we trust in that. Help us to cast away idols. Help us to just love you and love others. It's all about you. It's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we have liturgy, which is fun. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just read it. And as you, as I read it, I want you to just kind of um, sit and meditate, perhaps on remembrance. Um, and then, obviously, if you do not have the communion already, um, it wouldn't be a good time to grab it because this is going to take us through it. Communion, or the, or the Lord's Supper, is a way to celebrate our intimate connection and ongoing relationship with Jesus. Jesus invites all his people who have trusted in him for salvation to partake in communion. Communion is our opportunity as the people of God to spend time in quiet meditation and reflection, confessing our sins and trusting in God for forgiveness of those sins. Once we have confessed these sins and turned to Christ in faith, we partake in the bread and the juice just in the juice as an act of worship. If you have never trusted in Christ in faith, if you have never trusted in Jesus to save you from your sin and would not consider yourself a Christian, please do not partake in the Lord's Supper. Communion is a reminder that Jesus freely gave his life so that we might be forgiven and adopted as God's children. We take it not as an act of contrition and penance, but worship. Because in Christ, we have been welcomed home to God. We also take the Lord's Supper as a foretaste of the future. When we dine, when we will dine at the banquet feast of Christ in heaven. I'm going to lead us through a simple response time as we partake in communion. So take it as you feel led from your seats. Um, I'm just going to encourage us to pray for a few moments and confess your sins as you turn trusting to Christ. Paul shares with us a simple way to remember Jesus' atoning work in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the communion packet and uh, eat the wafer. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You can open the juice portion of the packet and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hallelujah.